Hello. How are you? We're back. Andrew Dunkley here, and good to be with you on the first uh, 2023 edition of Space Nuts. And coming up on this edition, we will be talking asteroids, one in particular that uh, came skimming past. I actually managed to put my arm up and touch it as it just uh, went overhead. Asteroid 2023 BU. And we will be talking about some new space Web, uh, James Webb Space Telescope episodes. As you can see, I'm so rusty. I haven't spoken. <laughs> My mouth hasn't opened for, for months. Uh, space, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope's got some new discoveries. Surprise, surprise. And we're going to uh, answer some audience questions about self-cleaning rovers, how spacecraft targets small, small objects, and uh, Earthrise. What is Earthrise and does it really exist? Well, we'll uh, talk all about that coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as he always did last year and probably will this year is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. I hope I'll be on every episode this year. It was um, a pleasure to be on every episode for the last seven years, so... That's all right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's great fun, and uh, and thanks to everybody for their patience. It's uh, it's been a bit of a longer break than we'd normally have, but there were uh, personal reasons for that. I won't show you the scars. <laughs> oh, go on, uh, go on, Andrew, go on. <laughs> you really don't want me to. They're all down here. I've got uh, I've got seven now. Seven scars. I've got five. This is pretty impressive. Now five, six, six new ones. <laughs> so um, yeah. Anyway, um, it was necessary, it's done, and I'm at home recuperating. Haven't been back to work yet. This is the first thing I've done since getting out of hospital. But thanks to everybody who sent me their good wishes. I really appreciate that. That's um, that's lovely. And, yes, um, all forward progress from here. As you can see, I'm feeling fit and healthy. And I've, I've got a couple of things to do, Fred. <laughs> I firstly, want to say thanks to James oh, right. in Cincinnati. Excellent. If you're on YouTube, you'll see this. Yeah. This is my um, Joe Burrow <laughs> Cincinnati Bengals shirt, which I wore yesterday while they played. Very sadly, they uh, they got pipped at the post, but uh, unfortunately they did not have the greatest game. So they won't be in the Super Bowl this year. They had a fabulous season. And uh, as I said to James, um, chin up, James, because they have the basis of a champion team. Their time will come. So thank you, James. I love the shirt. Oh, gosh. I so proudly wore it yesterday. I also want to send a shout-out to Martin Berman-Gorvine. Martin is the one that uh, is trying to terraform our entire solar system. Yes. Um, he sent me a couple of his books. Oh, wow. There they are. Uh, I finished reading this one. Uh, now, um, this is called The Double Life. I won't give too much away, but it's a great science fiction read and it's one of those stories that keeps you hanging on and hanging on because you're just busting to know what's going to happen. And that, to me, is a good story. So uh, I, I won't tell you how it ended, obviously, but um, wasn't expecting the ending to be the way it was. Uh, I, I, best, best way to describe the ending would be a soft landing rather than a punch <laughs> in the mouth, but that I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I, I really enjoyed it, Martin. Great, great story. This is a short story. This is only, um, what, 
25 pages. But that one is um, a good story in that it's kind of pitting science against religion. Mm. Really, really clever, really mm. clever. Love it. So um, thank you, Martin, for sending those through. The Long Morning of Heartwood and The Double Life by uh, Martin Berman Gorvine. If you are a sci-fi lover, look them up and, and get them and have a read because they're, uh, they're excellent. And uh, I think that gets me up to date. Anything you need to add, Fred? You've been, you've been, you know, a man of leisure, or you've been, you've been busy, I suppose. Yeah, we you never yeah. stop working. It's, uh, it's yes, it's been a busy, busy period. There's been a little bit of leisure. I had a very lovely day. Uh, well, for two days, Friday and Saturday, uh, on a cruising on a friend's boat in the Haw- Hawkesbury Estuary, which was delightful. Horrible, horrible place. <laughs> Uh, so that was uh, that was my holiday, um, but um, very soon I'll be uh, sitting in a meeting in Vienna of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space to talk about Barney. what they're doing. So we'll keep you up to date on that. Yeah, that that'll be really interesting. Gosh, I would have thought that uh, a subject like that could easily be solved in one paragraph. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> it does have a number of paragraphs. You're quite right. You, you put your you put your finger on the, on the on the exact structure, but uh, those paragraphs run to great length, and uh, there are many of them. And I can imagine. Yeah, it's a it's a dicey subject, and of course, it, it all goes down to the motivation of various bodies around the world, doesn't it? Indeed, some of which mm. are mentioned. I, I'm sure they are. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, okay. Now, uh, let's uh, get on to our first topic. And this was a, a recent near miss, as they like to call it in the popular press. Uh, I think I got sick of reading that this asteroid was the size of a minibus, but uh, it uh, was. Uh, asteroid 2023 BU, it got pretty darn close. Yeah, it did. Uh, 3,600 kilometres, or what's that, 2,200 miles or something like that. Um, yeah. It's... Uh, it's not the closest, actually. Uh, it is the fourth closest known asteroid encounter. Uh, 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 that's ignoring those that actually hit the atmosphere. I was about to say. Yeah. Uh, not counting those that hit us. Yeah, well, there were one or two, you know, like the Chelyabinsk uh, event uh, back in 2013. <clears throat> that doesn't count because it didn't go past. Uh, but 2023 BU is yeah, pretty close to a record breaker. Um, it's... It's not really clear. Yeah, we, we heard a minibus sized, uh, a delivery truck size. Um, it's uh, it is about that size, uh, somewhere between four and eight meters. Uh, you know, ten feet ish. That sort of ten, ten to ten to uh, fifteen feet. Um, uh, the problem is you, you never see these objects as a you know as a as a resolved object by which I mean you can see you can just measure directly how big it is. All you see is a point of light because it's so mm. far away. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, was discovered. This is the interesting bit. Um, basically, five days before uh, its closest approach, and guess who discovered it? I don't know whether you know this little factoid, Andrew. I do not. I was, I've been away, so I, I haven't really been keeping up to date yeah we would given that um you know the uh the earth is festooned now with asteroid detecting telescopes yeah uh, there's actually only half a dozen of them and they do a fine job um but this one was discovered by uh, an amateur astronomer whose name we've heard before his name is Gennady Borisov 
uh, who discovered Comet Borisov, the first yes. known interstellar comet. So he's kind of royalty in the astronomical world these days. Uh, he lives and works in Crimea, which can't be the easiest place in the world to live and work, but that's where he works, and he's doing a fabulous job. Yes, um, he is. So uh, it was discovered by Borisov, and of course um, th- there, there are mechanisms for you know how how, how you alert uh, the the science world to discoveries like that, uh, and that that um, that all. That all happened. It worked well. Uh, the it was immediately followed up by NASA uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory telescopes, um, and uh, it was recognised that it would pass close to the Earth uh, on uh, the twenty was that twenty eighth, twenty seventh? Can't remember. It was one day last week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, from our current vantage point, um, and would w- there was no chance that it would actually uh, impact the Earth. There are some interesting things, though, that have happened as a result of that close approach, uh, because it, uh, it 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 passed so close to the Earth that its orbit uh, around the Sun uh, is dramatically changed. Um, so, it's before the uh, before the close approach, it had a period of revolution around the Sun uh, of. If I remember rightly, it was 351 days. I'm looking for the figure, but I can't lay my hands on it. Uh, mm-hmm. It was about a year. Uh, but the gravitational pull of the Earth has accelerated it, uh, and so it's boosted its period up to, I think it's 425 days. I can see you looking it up, so you might be Yeah, I'm trying to. But... Um, it's, uh, anyway, it's significantly changed its orbit. It pushes it. Uh, it's aphelion, up, up the furthest point from the sun, uh, much closer to the orbit of Mars than it than it was before. So mm. uh, that's you know nice to know that there's a gravitational interaction uh, uh, interaction working well there. Um, it's not going to collide with the Earth. That that size of object would almost certainly burn up completely in the atmosphere, uh, perhaps leaving a few bits of debris. It's smaller by probably a factor of two. Uh, than the Chelyabinsk uh, asteroid that exploded uh, 30 kilometres above the city of Chelyabinsk in Russia. Um, Some quite large fragments uh, fell from that. I think the biggest was significant. I think it was a quarter of a tonne or something like that. I need to look that up. But um, it actually fell in a lake. It punctured a hole through the ice and fell in the lake. Uh, By the time it hit the ground, it was travelling, well, I won't say relatively slowly. Uh, It was still coming pretty fast, but it wasn't sort of, um, this kind of speed that explodes on impact and makes a crater. Uh, yeah. It was uh, by then it, it, most of its energy had been spent in the explosion above the above the town. But of course, as as you and I have spoken about many times, that um, broke a lot of windows and injured a lot of people who'd rushed to those windows to see what the flash of light was in the sky. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, because the flash of light reaches them before the shockwave. Yes, ninety seconds later, I think it was mm. that the shockwave arrived uh, from yeah. thirty kilometers. So. Uh, so this this is a smaller object than that, uh, and it may well have exploded in the atmosphere, but it would have it would have burnt up. But as it happened, it it uh, passed close to the southern tip of South America. That was uh, where its uh, its closest approach to Earth was, uh, and is now on its way out <laughs> towards the orbit of Mars. Yeah, so it'll go around again, I imagine. Yes, and- it will. Um, I, I saw some figures. Uh, not even sure I could lay my hands on these uh, quickly, but oh, here we are. Uh, 
the the orbits changed um the calculations show that there is a one in ten thousand chance of an impact sometime between 2020 2077 and 2123 Ooh. so um that's late in this century and early next century um but that one in 10,000 chance is very low. And as time goes on, uh, as the orbit of the object is refined, we'll learn much more about that. And it, it will probably end up, you know, not being a, a collision risk. Um, it's interesting that if the, a collision was predicted, uh, whether you would need to bother doing anything about it, because it is likely uh, to break up in the atmosphere. And mm -hmm. especially as time went on, you'd be able to predict whereabouts the atmospheric entry would be. Uh, if it was over the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you'd probably just, you know, wait for it to happen and uh, and look at the infras infrasound shock waves that it generated uh, by seismometers and things on Earth. On Earth. So yeah. um, uh, not, not, not a threat. But once again, it alerts us to the difficulty of finding these smaller objects uh, I was about to bring that up because we, we're very clever when it comes to discovering these things, but in recent years there have been a few instances where we've spotted them after they've passed us. Yes, yeah. And in this case it was the 21st it was discovered yep. and it yeah. departed on the 27th. Yeah, six, six days. 28th our time, 27th in yeah. South America. That's right. Yeah, so... so bit too late really to send a rocket up and divert it well that's right um i mean part of the good news of this story is that we know we can do that sort of thing after the dust yes. experiment last year but uh, the other good news part of it is that um the you know the most dangerous asteroids are the biggest ones or the bigger ones they are the easiest ones to find yes uh, because because they are highly reflective they reflect the sunlight and our telescopes can detect them so um, they're the, the you know the the uh, mass extinction asteroids, uh, ten kilometers or so. Um, there are, there are four of them about that size known uh, as near Earth objects, um, and we know what they're doing, and there's no risk of a collision within the foreseeable future, which goes well mm -hmm. over a hundred years. But it's the it's the sort of hundred meter ones that are really the challenge, uh, because uh, they are small enough uh, to elude detection, easy detection, but big enough to do serious damage if they do impact. Uh, yeah. And something like 39% of those, the, the statistical numbers are, are fairly clear, it's something like 39% of those are known. So there are a lot of those lurking out there, and that is definitely uh, part of NASA's mandate to find them, asteroids actually down to 140 metres. But uh, what, what would really help uh, would be a space mission, which is actually on NASA's horizon. Uh, it's being prepared. Uh, it's been pushed back a couple of times. Uh, this is called NEO Surveyor, and it's a spacecraft that would actually spend its time looking for these really difficult to find asteroids ones in particular that orbit uh, within the orbit of the earth or mm. spend part of the orbits uh, i think the launch has been pushed back again to 2028 uh neo surveyor but it, it is still on nasa's agenda uh, and i think it's been given a bit more impetus actually with the success of the dart mission now we know that there are things that we might be able to do if we had enough time uh, to deflect the uh, path of an asteroid. 
I imagine, though, like, like, like you said, it's easier to find the big ones, but they're, if they're the ones we have to move, they're harder to move. <laughs> they are, yes, much harder to move. Uh, but the, 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 the big ones um, are more likely to give us more time to move them. If, mm. You know, if today uh, we had an estimate that in 150 years' time there would be a likely impact between something, you know, maybe a kilometre across, which actually is significant, uh, then you've got uh, plenty of time uh, to try and move it. Uh, and, it, you know, there might be different ways of doing that. Um, you, you, you're really looking at a small acceleration. Uh, if you can do that earlier rather than later, then you've got a much better chance of changing the orbit so it misses the Earth altogether. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I suppose it, um, yeah, it can be a bit scary because... You, Seeing things at the last second makes you go, gosh, what else is out there? Well, that, uh, that's right, yeah. But That's what we're aiming to find with, with this um, this new mission. But, uh, yeah, every so often, it probably happens once or twice a year, I guess, Fred, does it? Something like that. Actually, something this size probably does hit the atmosphere once a year. Four, me- four mm. metres or so, I think, is reckoned to be uh, an, an, an annual, sorry, an annual event, Uh Kind of yeah, one per year. Twenty-five meters would be once every hundred years. Uh, so we've had that for this hundred years with the Chelyabinsk yeah. uh, event. Um, I guess the other good news part of this story, though, Andrew, is that in twenty-five years ago we wouldn't have known this thing made a close flyby. We just wouldn't Fair have point. known that it was there. So yeah. it's because we know about these things now that it's that that it's scary, but it's also something that we can address and um it's i think i think the world of astronomy and space science is doing a good job at, mm. at actually uh at actually guarding us against these things and we'll be doing an even better job when any uh, neo surveyor gets going if you want to uh, follow up on that story there's a great article in the conversation.com and it's it also um breaks down the hazards by numbers so it does, it'll tell right. you how big an asteroid has to be to do what sort of damage and yeah, you don't want to really look at anything above a hundred meters. That's yeah. <laughs> it's not good reading. No, <laughs> not not at all. Uh, this is sorry. No, I'm just going to say, written by uh, Steve Tingay, who's at um, Curtin University. He's somebody we work with quite closely in our department. Fantastic. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. And as we're into a new year, Nord is kicking off 2023 with a brand new deal, 63% off NordVPN. And uh, Judy and I have just come back from overseas and we uh, had uh, a lot of situations where we were using public Wi-Fi uh, over in New Zealand, uh, which is everywhere. And... Once again, I felt fairly safe because uh, I was using uh, VPN to protect me from anybody who might try to get into my personal information, banking information, email systems, password system, systems, whatever it was, uh, they couldn't get to it because I was using NordVPN. Now, uh, the, the, the deal for the new year, exclusive to Space Nuts listeners, uh, is fabulous. Now, what they are offering is uh, different levels of plan over different terms. You can go month by month, although that costs you a bit more. You can have a one-year plan or a two-year plan. 
and there are three tiers within each of those plans. Now, the most popular is the basic service, which is giving you the high-speed VPN, malware protection and tracker and ad blocker software. But if you go to tier two, uh, it gives you just a little bit more, including the cross-platform uh, password manager and a data breach scanner. But if you go with the, the top-tier plan, you get the whole bang lot, including one terabyte of encrypted cloud storage. And who doesn't need that these days? So there it is. And it is uh, guaranteed. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee on uh, NordVPN and all its services. So there is no risk in signing up for this service through our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, the URL you need uh, is fairly simple, uh, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. And then just click get the deal and find the the system that works best for you. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Now, back to the show. Roger, you're live. We're here also. Space nuts. Now, Fred, to something we never talk about, the James Webb Space Telescope. And it's in the news all the time, but it's in the news again because of uh, yet more discoveries. What's what's it uncovered this time? Uh, yeah, this comes from a, a, a web science release, which is entitled Webb Unveils Dark Side of Pre-Stellar Ice Chemistry. And I guess that tells the story, really. Um, that is to say that... Uh, the Webb Telescope has been looking deep into uh, what's called a giant molecular cloud, a cold cloud in space, uh, which is where we know uh, stars will eventually form and planets will eventually form. So this is a yeah. this is a nebula which is uh, likely to give birth to stars, and they've kind of looked in the darkest, coldest regions of this cloud uh, in order to analyze its contents. Uh, And what they've done is they've produced an inventory of uh, elements and molecules, which are basically uh, the the building blocks, not the building blocks of life so much as the building blocks of the building blocks of life, if I can put it that way. Um, So all, all the things that we need for life and the, the magic word is chons. I don't know whether you and I have ever spoken about chons before, no. uh, Andrew, but chons is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and sulfur. And they are important ingredients in, in well, first of all, in the atmospheres of planets, but also in some of the molecules that we, we consider to be the organic uh, building blocks of life, like sugars, alcohols, amino mm. acids, things of that sort. So, um, that is why these things are of interest, because, you know, if you find them in a molecular cloud, what it means is that somewhere down the track, when a, when a star forms with its planets, and we might be talking about 100 million years now, uh, but those, those elements are there. And the fact that they're found in molecular clouds like this, which are very cold, um, cold means molecules. It means these chemicals can get together and actually form molecules uh, which include uh, the ones that have been found, uh, and they are actually ice, ices, they're frozen, but they're things like uh, uh, carbonyl sulfide, ammonia, methane, methanol. These are you know, com- fairly complex organic molecules, 
uh, and they are really, um, uh, as, as I said, quite exciting to find inventoried uh, in this in this uh, survey. Um, the leading leaders of this work are astronomers at uh, Leiden Observatory in the Netherlands, mm. and there's a really nice quote from. Uh, Melissa McClure, who's, I think she, she's the principal investigator of this work. She says, our results provide insights into the initial dark chemistry stage of the formation of ice on the interstellar dust grains that will grow into centimetre-sized pebbles from which planets form in disks. These observations open a new window on the formation pathways for the simple and complex molecules that are needed to make the building blocks of life. She says it a lot nicer than I did. Uh, and uh, one of her colleagues, uh, uh, Will uh, Rooker, uh, who's also at Leiden, says, our identification of complex organic molecules like methanol and potentially ethanol also suggests that many star and planet systems developing in this particular cloud will inherit molecules in a fairly advanced chemical state. Uh, this could mean that the presence of prebiotic molecules in planetary systems is a common result of star formation rather than a unique feature of our own solar system because we think that this, you know, these molecules, many of them did actually make their way to, the, to Earth uh, from the raw material of the, of the clouds uh, that the sun formed in, uh, in, the, you know, in, the, in the form of comets. Mm. And you and I have spoken before about how Earth was potentially seeded and how it got its water. And the yeah. previous theory was that uh, asteroids delivered the water. But uh, what they've discovered here through the James Webb Space Telescope with the uh, uh, centimetre-sized pebbles uh, for, from which planets form in disks, uh, this, is, this is how they now think Earth got its water. Um, the water's already there, yeah. The water's already in the dust, which yeah. turns into pebbles, which turns into disks, which turns into a planet. That's right. And then you get into the habitable zone, you've yeah. got water. So mm. um, I, you're right, Andrew, um, and I think there's still um, – so, so that is certainly one strong view of where the Earth's water came from, that it's, it was embedded in the rocks from which the Earth was made. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that there's still – uh, I think most people who study this sort of thing think that, yes, at least some of the water came from comets and asteroids as well. So mm. I think it might turn out that it's a mixture. Um, and it's one that's quite difficult to solve. You've got the thing about the, you know, the isotope content, uh, whether you've got heavy water or light water. We, we've discussed that in great detail in Space yep. Nuts. Um, so I think it's still an open question as to what the proportions were. How much was there in the rocks? How much was there... Uh, brought in by comets uh, later but, on. Yeah, great yeah. stuff. So, I suppose in announcing this discovery, they're saying that these planets could form. They could potentially be life-bearing planets in the future, but they, you know, I suppose it depends on water content as to how significant yeah. that potential is. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I think that's a yeah. fair, fair, fair comment. Mm. I, I think last year will be hard to top in terms of astronomical achievements because we had so much going on, the DART mission, the James Webb Space Telescope, a couple other things that I can't think of off the top of my head because I've still got um, general anaesthetic foggy brain. But um, <laughs> Doesn't it, show. Was, Doesn't show. It, was a, <laughs> it was a standout year 
last was, year yes. in, in astronomy. Yep. Just remarkable. And, and space science. There is, <clears throat> um, I mean, 2023 is going to have its highlights. We've got the launch of the JUICE mission to uh, to the Jupiter ice moons. Uh, oh, I, think I thought you were going to say to the orange planet. Sorry, <laughs> well, on. It, one of them's orange, I guess. Eo, <laughs> Eo is orange, but it's not an ice moon. It's a volcanic moon. Um, uh, that's, I think, scheduled for April. So no doubt you and I will be talking about that. So the juice, where's that going again? Jupiter's, it, it's going to check out Europa, basically. Ah, that's uh, a really good yeah, target. I can't remember what juice is, a, is an acronym. Jupiter, ice moon surveyor or something like that probably yeah i can't remember no, mm. that's, all right that's, that's an s rather than a c isn't it <laughs> uh, yeah but uh that that story about the the discovery by james webb space telescope is on the etherweb.org website if you want to check it out this is space nuts my name is andrew dunkley and with me is professor fred watson space nuts now fred guess what we're doing it must be question time. It is question time, mm. and we've got some fresh questions. Now, um, I've been a bit rude, I'll, I'll admit to that, but I have wiped the slate clean. We are starting from scratch with questions. So if you've sent us questions, um, yeah, they're gone. <laughs> well, no, that's not quite true, but <laughs> if you sent questions last year. That we haven't answered. That we haven't. If you sent questions last year, that yeah, we, we, we're going to start from scratch. So... Uh, get them into us uh, through the website so that we can uh, start uh, collating them and answering them on Space Nuts for 2023. Now, our first question comes from Baltimore, home of the Ravens, <laughs> and uh, it comes <laughs> – sorry, Harold. <laughs> it comes from, comes from Harold. Yeah, it's a whole new dimension on uh, space. Hello, Andrew and Fred. My name is Howard, and I am from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, in the United States. And I have a quick question for you. I am so enthralled with uh, our ability to send vehicles to Mars and uh, have them, uh, you know, work almost autonomously. Well, at least by remote control. And it's so thrilling to see what kind of uh, data they're capturing and, and sending back. Uh, it's just amazing that we can even do that. But no matter how much we love those little vehicles and no matter how much they overperform our expectations, they all die. And it seems that every one of them dies because, you know, a little storm kicks up some dust and uh, covers their solar panels so they can't get uh, uh, solar energy. So my question is, with all that amazing technology and all those things the robotics can accomplish, why can't they just put a little feather duster on the end of a stick and let it, you know, dust off the solar panel so the thing can continue to do science? It seems like the easiest, uh, simplest, uh, uh, I don't know, no-brainer kind of solution. Uh, do you have any explanation as to why they wouldn't consider that in the first place? Mm. Thanks and so much. Bye no bye. worries. Thank you, uh, Howard. I got his name wrong. I thought he said Harold, but um, yeah. Well, I already insulted him about his football team. I might as well keep it going. Uh, thank you, Howard. Um, the other problem with rovers is their wheels fall off. So <laughs> they do. That generally brings them to a grinding halt. There have been a couple of cases of that. But look, it's a brilliant idea and so simple why you know, my thinking was maybe wiper blades just to yeah. scrape the solar panels yeah. clean why couldn't they build that into it um 
A great question, and um, I won't insult you at all, Howard. Uh, <laughs> unlike my partner, who uh, it's it, my it job. Is, it's a great suggestion. Um, let me just put it in context, though, because uh, first of all, the, the 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 big rovers that are currently exploring Mars. Um, I'm, I'm talking now about NASA specifically, uh, Perseverance and Curiosity. Both of those, neither of those, have solar panels. They both have a radioisotope thermoelectric generator aha uh-huh. um the two previous ones um uh what were they gosh spirit and opportunity yes that's right uh, they did have solar panels and um on many occasions they those solar panels were cleaned by dust devils that passed over <laughs> the right. spacecraft there was a really great uh, case of that I think was it opportunity. It would it it was like end of mission. Yeah, and then it woke up again. It woke up. Went, yeah. Oh, right. okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but but in the end, um, it was uh, kind of as, as Andrew's alluded to. It was mechanical failure. It was, um, I mean, opportunity dragged one wheel for the best part of the second half of its career, um, and they, they just sort of wore out. Um, the one spacecraft that has died because its solar panels got covered in dust is insight yes uh, which uh kind of shut down towards the end of last year uh that's the really the only one that's that's carked it because of uh because of dust entirely um the, i think spirit and opportunity that, that certainly dust was an issue uh but there were I think one of them got bogged and was at the wrong angle for its solar panels to get light from the sun. I can't remember the details. But inside Mm. definitely was uh, end of life because of dust on the solar panels. And, yeah, um, a a nice addition might well have been a windscreen wiper uh, or something to wipe the panels. Because if you used, like, if you tried to use compressed air, I imagine on Mars, as soon as you sort of fired it, it would freeze or the, the canister would freeze itself. I don't know. Yeah, um, that, that I don't be. know if it would be very workable. A wiper blade, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a squeegee. You, you know, these people at Jet Propulsion Laboratory who design these things, they're not, they're not without in, ingenious ideas. Um, and so there must Probably be a good reason this. why that mm. has not happened. And I don't know what it is, but I'd quite like to find out. It may be that it's just too much I, I of an I think error. I know. It's all, right. it's all to do with budget. Have you ever bought a spare part for a car? <laughs> it could be it could be issues of lubrication for, you know, the windscreen wiper. I don't know. Um, I, I, I think it's an mm. interesting suggestion. And let's, let's make it our mission to find out why they don't fit windscreen wipers on solar panels. Um, I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. Oh, some sort of, who thought of that? Some sort of mechanism. It was Howard. <laughs> no, he only asked the question. <laughs> but, no, it's a great question. I, I never would have considered it, but uh, it, it does open up um, opportunity. Boom, boom. And maybe maybe it's something he could write to NASA about and say, have you ever thought of? Uh, and and there'd be a really good reason why. It's, it's not going to come back as... Oh, what a great idea. We should have thought of that. But you never know. I mean, we're talking about people who who think in the highest yes. levels of science and space well, science and astronomy. So they might not just go, oh, maybe we should put a windscreen wiper on that. Mm. I mean, it might not be front of mind. <laughs> I think that given 
that all these rovers have got, you know, they've they've all exceeded their life expected life times True. by thousands and thousands of percent. I think they've thought of most things, uh, and um, you know, the, but the, there must be a pragmatic reason why it doesn't happen. Yes, uh, I'm I'm sure it is. Uh, uh, and relying on dust devils is not necessarily the best way to do it. No, uh, but it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh, Maybe uh, just one other comment on this is that uh, Ingenuity, which does have its have a solar panel, that's the helicopter, uh, yeah. has got its own way of cleaning things it by sure simply flying through the air. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the 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 solar panel actually sits above the rotors, but the you know the downdraft from the rotors even above them probably is enough to to blow stuff off. Uh, and certainly, as it flies through the air, that would that would uh, come off easily. Uh, yeah. Mm, yep. All right, Howard, thanks for your question. Lovely to have you first cab off the rank for 2023. Let's now move on to Sandy. Hi, Fred and Andrew. It's Sandy here from Melbourne again. Hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's. My question today relates to orbits and space travel. In fact, I've got myself a little muddled up here. My loose understanding is the spacecraft essentially escape Earth's orbit and transition to an orbit around the intended target. Can you please explain how spacecraft travel to small objects like asteroids, such as in the case of the DART mission, you know, where the gravity influence of that object may not be as big as our moon or a planet such as Mars? Is it as simple as pointing the spacecraft in the direction you want to go and light the engines? I assume not. Um, looking forward to your answer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. The short answer is they fly, but they actually don't fly because there's no air, so they have no lift and therefore they cannot fly. But um, it's a good question and I think there'll be a lot of more, a lot more mathematics uh, to it than just point and shoot. Although point and shoot is the basis of it. Um, yeah. Because what happens is when you... Yeah, you launch a spacecraft like like Dart uh, on its way to the asteroid uh, pair Didymos and Dimorphos. Um, you would start off by getting it up to a velocity that is greater than what is it, eleven point four, eleven point two? I can't remember kilometers per second. It's just over eleven uh, to escape the Earth's gravity. And what that does is puts the thing into a sort of parabolic orbit actually uh it it it, it gets launched vertically <clears throat> uh, but then tips over on its side and and heads off kind of parallel to the earth's surface mm. um and what you have to do is to time your launch so that when it does do that trick of ending up parallel to the earth's surface it is also on an orbit around the sun that will take it past the asteroid. That's the critical thing. You, you, you basically take it off the Earth, you're lighting the engines up to give it the um, power to sit the thing in an orbit that is actually no longer around the Earth, it's around the Sun, um, but it's such an orbit that will actually rendezvous or will um, interact, cross the orbit of your target object. Um, now, that's fine for something like DART, which was a one-way trip. It was designed just to slam into the asteroid. Uh, the aim was very precise. I think they were within a few kilometres of the target. Uh, sorry, a few metres of the target. Yeah. Uh, it was fantastic stuff. 
Um, and so there will be corrections along the way, slight corrections, but the, the basis is just to, it's, it's to point it in the right direction and light the engines. That's exactly as, as Sandy says. Uh, as long as you're uh, doing that, by doing that, you're going to wind up on the orbit that uh, actually gets you to where you want to be at the time you want to be when your target object is also there. So it is complex mathematics to do all that. Um, mm. Just to tie up the loose end, if, you, if you're going to you, you know, a, an object where you want to put it in orbit, where you want to put your spacecraft in orbit around something, then you have to, you, to, to do all that we've said already, put it in an orbit around the sun that carries you there, and then you have to basically brake your spacecraft using braking rockets uh, to slow it down so that it's captured by the gravity of whatever it is you're in orbit around, and that might be something as small as a comet nucleus because we talked long and hard about Rosetta uh, years ago, a spacecraft which went into orbit around comet, what was it, 67P? Uh, Churyumov, Gerasimenko, if I remember rightly, Um, that uh, that object's only four or five kilometres across. Uh, So once the Rosetta spacecraft had got to it, uh, then it fired its braking rockets to slow it down enough that it would actually be captured by the weak gravity of the comet, and sure enough, it worked very well. Mm, Indeed. Yeah, uh, I, I just think it's remarkable that we are able to build something a machine, send it into space and fly it for months and months and months and sometimes longer and insert it into the orbit of or land it on a tiny little object so far away. I just really admire that science. Yes, it is. (laughs) Fabulous. Mind-blowing. And uh, that'll be happening a lot more often as uh, time goes on. There's just so many more missions being touted with so many more space agencies now operating, Fred. There's, mm-hmm. there's so many more opportunities to, uh, to, to perform acts of uh, science over long distances and looking forward to uh, Europa Clipper, is it? Yep. Um, that's, uh, uh, is... that's the ESA version of yeah. JUICE, I think. Is, I think yes. I've got that the other uh, way around. Really no, it might be the other, to those... no, sorry, it's the other way around. JUICE is the... Just as the ESA one, uh, Europa Clippers, NASA. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm looking forward to those missions because there's so much promise in those ice moons and can't wait to see what they see. Uh, thank you, Sandy. We'll just do one more quick question before we wrap it up today. And this one comes from Silvio who messaged us um, while we are on our break. Uh, Hi, thanks for an excellent podcast. You're listening to Space Nuts, Silvio, so I'm not sure. Anyway, um, it is. It's moon, excellent. It's excellent. <laughs> if the moon is tidally locked with Earth, was calling the famous image Earthrise a little misleading? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I, now they're talking about one of the Apollo photos that were taken uh, was taken from the lunar surface of the Earth appearing over the lunar horizon, and it was uh, titled Earthrise. Uh, but moon, the moon being tidally locked, so I suppose it, um, it, yeah, it does make you wonder why you'd call it Earth rise if it potentially wasn't the rise of the Earth. But I know what you're going to say, Fred. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Have you finished, Andrew? Have you finished? <laughs> I think so. Uh, um, so yeah, it was the Apollo eight uh, image of the Earth. So they weren't on the surface; they were they orbiting. were in orbit. 
there that's it is. right. And that's and that's the trick. So it only rose because they were on an orbiting spacecraft, and the Earth indeed, you know, it, its appearance was that the Earth rose behind the lunar horizon, uh, mm. but that was only because the spacecraft was hurtling towards the lunar horizon at so one or two kilometers per second. I think it's a bit more than that. So, so it did give the impression of the Earth rising. Uh, but uh, Silvio's absolutely right. Uh, seeing from any point on the moon, the Earth doesn't rise and set. Uh, it always stays in the same point in the sky because of the fact that the Earth is tidally, that the moon is tidally locked to the Earth. So, so if you were on the side of the moon where you couldn't see the Earth, you'd just have to go for a walk to watch to see the it rise. rise. Yeah, quite a long walk, maybe. <laughs> Probably. Uh, with a few mountains in the way as well. So, yes, yeah, so Earthrise was a misnomer in that regard. It's, it, mm. it's, it's not a misnomer if you think of your reference point as being sitting on the spacecraft, which is where, where the photograph was taken. So the Earth did appear to rise behind the limb of the moon from the spacecraft. But if now, you were on the moon, right- wouldn't. Would I be right in saying that photo was taken on or about Christmas Day? It was um, just before, I think, just before Christmas. It was, it was. I think it might have been Christmas Eve. Um, I do yeah. remember it. I can't remember the exact date. But, yeah, it was very emotive uh, stuff with, you know, um, uh, a, a religious festival like that, uh, very much forefront of everybody's mind. And, uh, and here were humans in orbit around the moon quite extraordinary actually they weren't in orbit they just did a a figure of eight loop i think it blew the budget too because they had to get paid triple time for working the public (laughs) holiday there you go (laughs) all right thanks silvio um or silvano i think it is Uh, i'm going well with names today um great to uh hear from you and get your question. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. And don't forget, if you've got questions for us, we need new questions because we're starting from scratch, as I mentioned earlier. So go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Oh, I even remember what they were. And uh, you can click on the, the links there to send your questions. Now, that could be the link on the right that says, send us your voice messages or you can click the AMA tab. I'm doing this as I speak. And then you can record your audio question by pressing the start recording button. As long as you've got a device with a microphone, such as a, a smartphone or a, or a tablet or even a computer, most of them come with microphones built in these days, laptops, whatever, you can record a message uh, and send it to us. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. And certainly don't forget to put your reviews down about Space Nuts through your podcast distributor. The more reviews we get, the more likely it is we're going to pick up uh, more audience and the bigger we get, the, um, the, the more we have to talk. No, I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we want to grow the family. And uh, you can talk to each other too through the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, which is a, a really great group, lots and lots of fun. Uh, Fred, we're we're done for another day. In fact, we're done for the first time in 2023. Thanks for coming back. I appreciate <laughs> it. Pleasure. Doing this no. by myself would have been very difficult. <laughs> You'd have been fine, Andrew. You'd have been fine. <laughs> you just get everybody's name wrong. That's all. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm good at that. I'm good at that. <laughs> no worries. No, always a pleasure, and I look forward to the next time. Catch you soon. Fred Watson, astronomer and la- at large, and from me, Andrew. Oh, and thanks uh, to Hugh in the studio who isn't around today because he's on holidays and didn't do anything. But thanks anyway, Hugh. Appreciate it. Uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Thanks for hanging around for a, a few weeks while we're away. We'll be back again next time with another edition of Space Nuts. 
Bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.